0: That's really sweet, actually, that you did that research, hoping it would change something for your sister, Dr. Matthews said. I want to highlight that as something really, really good, that you're not still stuck in wrong theology or bad belief. Yeah, I guess so, I said. What was your purpose for sending those videos to your sister? Do you think you know why you did that? He asked. Yeah, I mean, when I sent them, I also sent a voice note asking her to be kind of the fighter and defender that I know she is, for me. I told her I didn't just want her to be okay with my lifestyle or to just agree to disagree. I wanted her to be fully on my side and to actually fight for me. You want a champion, Dr. Matthews said. There's something in you that wants that archetypal champion. There's something in all of us that wants that. That's actually really, really beautiful.
1: Anna i'm just sending this voice recording because it's probably better than text um but this is nothing big don't worry well it is something big but it's not something dangerous or bad <laughs> um but i don't know how to phrase what i'm gonna say and i feel like that's what is making me feel nervous about sending this so I'm just gonna say it and I hope that you take it in a good way and not a bad way but um I was just thinking about how you both you and Hunter have recently and over the last like couple months been saying things like you just don't care about the fact that I'm gay or like it's totally fine, like, we can agree to disagree, slash, like, I don't know if you actually said that, but you just said, like, yeah, like, it's totally fine, like, you can live your life how you want, and we're going to support you, but we just don't care. And I haven't really, like, known why that has felt unsettling or, like, not fully right to me, but I think the reason is because I just... I want like your full support and like defense of me in this scary world and not just your indifference i guess like i don't just want like a like a don't ask don't tell version i want like a i want the intense fierce defender that is my older sister to be on my side um and so with that i just want to ask like especially with you saying things like you want to be my best friend or you want to be a lot closer to me like that is something that i would expect or that i would ask of my best friends and i do ask of my best friends that we understand each other and that you like take enough time to you know deconstruct your current theology or look into belief systems that are like harming to me and make my life more dangerous um and so that's just what I'm asking of you and Hunter is that you actually like just look into the belief systems and look into the into the things that um that you might believe that are that are actually harming to me Um, and again, like, I guess I don't even fully know what your belief systems are, but at the same time, it's like, I know that you guys seem to like support Bethel or seem to support like people like Sean Foyt and stuff who are like pretty against me. Um, and so that's just where I feel like some of the disconnect is coming. Um, but yeah, so with that, I... I have a couple of videos that I want to ask that you guys watch. And I don't know if you've watched them yet or not, but. There's this woman named Kathy Baldock. And she has these like two, three hour YouTube videos that I'm going to send to you. And they basically just like lay out the theology of like how. How and why over the last century, people have demonized gay people and made it and legitimately inserted the word homosexuality bible um and basically how it's all it's a pretty new concept to be against gay people so um i want to send those to you and i would love for you to watch them and like let me know your thoughts and just have like an open mind and open heart about them um and i typically don't do that like i don't send people who are <laughs> Anti-gay, these things, which again, not saying that you're anti-gay, but I'm just, I guess I just don't know. Um, I don't typically send people materials like that because I'm like, you'll come to the conclusion you want to. And if you want to, if you, you know, think that it's an important thing for you to research and adjust your beliefs for me, then you'll do the research, you know, you'll find out that information yourself but i just wanted to like extend some of the resources to you guys because you're my family and because i want you to uh you know have everything you need to like actually do the research and do the the soul searching slash uh deconstruction of your faith you know with with me in mind so um but i love you and i just wanted to say like that's something that I've been thinking about and something that has felt off to me and I'm just want to just want to be honest if we're gonna like move forward with a closer relationship um but yeah let me know if you have questions and I love you
0: this episode of queer therapy is doing the work for you I've debated making this episode because as I said in that voice note I typically don't extend this kind of courtesy or Opportunity to people who don't support me um, or just to the world out there in general, uh, free of charge. (laughs) But I've realized that a condensed version of a sort of deconstructing theology surrounding gay people and being uh, in the queer community is apparently really needed. And as I've talked to my queer friends about this topic, We all seem to have friends or family members or someone in our lives who have told us that it's just too much work to deconstruct their faith in order to understand why we think it's okay to be gay from a biblical perspective. I also struggle to talk about this topic because I don't fully know if I even want to put myself in the crosshairs of religious people by using the Bible to defend my lifestyle because I don't think that that's what validates me. It's never made sense to me when people use the Bible to invalidate my life because most of the time we don't even have the same understanding of what the Bible is. I also am not fully open about what my faith is and that is still going to be left up to a mystery, but I think it's pretty well known that I have a history in evangelical Christianity and so that is where a lot of my foundational belief comes from. Um, I think that if you want a little peek into what my faith is, the closest thing is something similar to Glennon Doyle, who I quoted on this pod in another episode, but that's not what this pod is about. I'm going to construct a pretty simple and clear explanation for why your theology is incorrect if you believe that queer people should not be ex- accepted from a biblical perspective, Um, If you have a non-affirming theology, then this pod will be the silver bullet that deconstructs your faith. I'm going to do this by quoting and showing some recordings from that same video that I mentioned within that voice recording that I sent to my sister a few months ago from Kathy Baldock, who put together a very well-researched and actually one of the only researched uh, deconstructions of why and how the word homosexual was put in the bible and how those verses were used as clobber passages to discredit any sort of homosexual or queer behavior. She gives a perspective that first takes account of military history, medical history, and uh, social history as well as biblical history and lays them all on top of each other in order to give a bird's eye view of what was going on within culture, specifically western culture, at the time of the insertion of the word homosexual into the bible in 1946. Because yes, it was only in 1946 when the first instance of the word homosexual was found in the bible. Before then, it was just tie and malakoi, which were not meant to be top and bottom, as I was taught in my weird BSSM school. <laughs> they actually mean something closer to passive person, or effeminate person, or person who uses sexual uh, intimacy to climb a ladder. That's what malakoi means, and Kathy Baldock will explain that in a more Uh, scientific way, and then Malakoy is meant to be someone with power who is using sex uh, for their own specific desires. So essentially, the made-up word homosexual refers to something that is completely different from what we think of the word homosexual and what was thought of the word homosexual at the time of its insertion into the Bible. I'm going to go into much more uh, Specific detail about all of this stuff in one moment, but that's the intro to queer therapy and I hope that you enjoy this episode Um, Buckle up my friends because this is going to be a bit of a longer episode Where I kind of just recount some of the facts and historical data surrounding the word homosexual and I guess just The views of gay people and queer people throughout history, especially in Western civilization Um, I'm gonna do this through using a lecture uh, that was done by Kathy Baldock. And you can find these videos on YouTube. I will put the links in the description as well. You should absolutely go watch them in full. Right now I'm going to just piece together what I think are some of the most important clips and points that she talks about um, that kind of stitch together the historical foundation from which all of the hate and um, Christian homophobic belief systems come um, in a way that can kind of position you to understand why and how the word homosexual was inserted into the Bible, and also from a broader perspective, not just a biblical one, how and why our Western society has become so anti-gay, specifically because our uh, the roots of our culture are founded in patriarchal, and christian social systems which kathy goes over in great detail um, in order to kind of set the stage for how and why in the 19th century or sorry the 20th century um, these things could still be so prevalent and specifically important in all of the the biblical translations that we use even today so i'm going to uh, show a clip or play a clip from Kathy Baldock, and this is from a YouTube video called "Unclobbering the Tangled Mess Part One" with Kathy Baldock. A note on these clips: I've sped up the time to be 1.5x the original speed, so Kathy doesn't actually sound like that. But I figured, in the interest of time, it it would be worth condensing a lot of what she says into more concise clips. So, without further ado, here's Kathy Baldock.
2: So what I'm going to do over the next two days is I'm going to lift people out of their bubbles, out of their safe zones, and I'm going to lift you high, and I'm going to let you look on this great span of history and look down on these things that maybe are problematic for you or that you never understood, and then I'm going to let you see this foundational truth about history, and then I'm going to take, and not that I do not respect the Bible as a sacred document, but I'm going to take the Bible as a historical document, and I'm going to lay it back on that foundational, those foundational principles, and so that we can discover together what those verses actually mean in truth. And when you see how by the end of this, the end of tomorrow, I hope that you'll be able to look back and you'll be able to see that this anti-gay theology is a very new thing. It probably only really started in the 80s. So we have retrofitted scripture to and created a theology. And it's not that old. And if it's not that old, it probably can be undone with some foundational truths.
0: Kathy then talks about the history of humanity being pretty much rooted in patriarchy. Of course, we're talking more about Western civilization here. But essentially, since 12,000 years ago, our history has been very rooted in patriarchy, which means that men have controlled the means of production, money, um, social norms, and essentially women <laughs> for 12,000 years. This all started from the idea that we need men in order to gather food and to survive, to protect the you know the groups of people that exist. And so patriarchy is pretty ingrained in who we are as a society, especially as a Western society. And in fact, the um, idea of taking down the patriarchy or changing the system from the patriarchy only began in about the fifties or sixties. So it's only been about 80 years of the idea of uh, patriarchy potentially not being the right way to go.
2: Everything within The view of the world was seen through agrarian eyes, because this is the culture they knew. So a man planted his seed within a woman. She was a fertile planting ground. You can think of the creation stories. You can think of all of those and to know that this was part of their agrarian culture, the lens through which they saw. Um, And women, the only part, the only essential part women have been in creation until 1870, 1870. We didn't know until 1870 that it took an egg and a sperm to make a baby. So through all of history, men have thought that that stuff inside of their white stuff, was an entire human being, and that all he had to do was put that into a fertile planting ground you got a human. So this is gonna make sense because if the man has all the stuff to make a human being, the man can't waste that stuff, he can't put it in the wrong orifice, and he can't put it in the wrong place or waste it because that would be morally wrong and essentially sinful eventually, okay? Um, so a seed not placed in a woman would have been destroyed. So women did not have the status that, women, that men had. So to put a man in the sexual role of a woman, to penetrate a man was to make him take the social and se- social to and sexual role of a woman. So penetrating another man or a male was like weaponizing sex. Totally different view than it is today. So when men would go into an area and they would conquer or they would take over another group, it would be quite common that they would also rape the men to put them into the place of a woman. All of this is gonna make sense because where I'm going with it is all through history, these are the words you're gonna hear constantly, is patriarchy, penetration, and procreation. They're <laughs> all tied together.
0: So essentially, men were good and women were bad.
2: Lots of stories and myths have to do with women behaving badly to bring evil into the world. And then we have some church fathers. From the second century, we have Tertullian, and one of my favorite quotes. He says, a woman's vagina is a temple built over a sewer. So if you've seen vagina monologues, this is a line you have not seen in it, heard in it. The vagina is a gateway to the devil. Woman, you are the devil's doorway. (laughs) It gets worser. We're only starting here. Um, It was your fault that the son of God had to die. You should always go around in mourning and rags. Okay. Uh, Aristotle in the fourth century, he thought that a woman was an infertile male and that when a woman had a menstrual period, it was actually failed semen coming out of her. Uh, And a woman was actually a defective male. Okay. So the way you unfortunately got a baby daughter is if the hot of a man couldn't overcome the cool of a woman, then you were cursed with a baby girl. But if the hot of a man did come overcome the cool of a woman, then you got a baby boy. So the, you know, it was a man struggling against a woman. Uh, women were seen, and they're going to be seen this way through history. So I'm, what I'm doing is laying this, this, this foundation of women are not so desirable to be. Okay. Uh, women were seen as temptresses, causing men to sexually fall. They were also to blame when something went wrong in childbirth. So breech baby, any kind of thing goes wrong in childbirth. And if you ended up through the 1870s, if you ended up with a baby with, we would call ambiguous genitalia, through the 1870s, they called those babies monsters. We call them intersex people. Okay. But you got an intersex baby when the woman did something wrong. Okay, So she did something wrong by having excess lust and tempting the man. So it was, it was typically a woman that was at fault. In the 4th and 5th centuries, we have uh, Christian views of sex begin to form under St. Augustine. Uh, he was really really an interesting guy. Okay? So 1,500 years ago, and he becomes the basis for a lot of Christian um, sexual ethics. Christian ethics.
0: Kathy talks about how St. Augustine moved towards a stoicism that viewed sex in a very specific way.
2: This will come up again in Romans. Stoicism says that sex needs to be procreative. It needs to be sexually procreative. It needs to have male dominance, which means male penetrating, and it needs to have self-control. So he starts placing those values into Christian ethics about, uh, about sex.
0: This brings us to the common belief that any sex that is not male-dominated or procreative is wrong.
2: It is the devil, it is Satan in the woman that is making his penis come to an erection. It's not his thoughts. So even his own erections are the fault of a woman and the devil in him, the devil in them, tempting him. Everything, everything was the fault of the woman. Any bad behavior was the fault of the women. Men didn't take take, uh, responsibility for these things. So um, ancient Greeks and Latin languages don't have a word for homosexual. They don't have this word. If you tried to use the word homosexual probably before this time in history, around the 1930s, you're gonna get a completely different understanding of what homosexual is. We're gonna see that when we look through psychoanalytics and psychology. So to certainly, to try to use the word homosexual within a biblical context makes no sense because same-sex eroticism within ancient cultures have a completely different place than, than we have it now. Sex and pleasure were not linked, not necessarily linked, but sex and domination were. Okay, sex and domination, not sex and, and, and marriage. Sex and marriage starts getting, at least love and marriage start getting linked in the mid 1800s, and sex and marriage starts getting linked for Christians in the 1970s, and before that, <laughs> the beginning of the 1900s. So we can't look at the past through our sensibilities of today. So sex was not something you had with somebody, as we understand, sex was something you did to somebody. So in ancient, uh, in ancient Athens, the sex objects come in two varieties. So you were either, you, it was not the male and female, you were either the penetrator dominant and the aggressive, or you were the penetrated and submissive. So those were the two categories. Male masculine, female feminine, dominant penetrator, submissive penetrated. So it was not male and female. It could be men taking the role of a female, right? So you were taking the male role or you were taking the female role. You were playing the role of masculine or you were playing the role of feminine. And men could play the role of feminine if they were penetrated. So same-sex acts were condemned in both, uh, they were common in Greece and Rome. And about 400, 500 years, uh, 400, 400, 500, fifth, fourth, fifth century, uh, they started to be condemned within the culture, but certainly at the time of the, when the Bible was written, they were not condemned, they were common. And it was Christians coming along and changing sexual ethics. And But the sexual act through much of history between male and female was to be avoided like the plague and kept to a minimum. This is a lot of the imposition of the Catholic Church. And during the medieval times, the, the Catholic Church had such unbelievable rules on uh, how and when you were supposed to have sex. It was like they completely sucked the joy out of any kind of sexual experience. 1100, uh, this 11th century, Peter Damian is a Catholic monk, and um, he's noticing, this is in the news this week, he's noticing that there are priests doing inappropriate things with little boys. He says there are acts that they're doing with little boys that the priests are coming to, you know, um, they're having ejaculations, and they're doing, he writes this very specific list of, here's the things the priests are doing with little boys, and he says, this must be wrong, and he coins the word sodomia, sodomy. And so, but it was specifically a word that was intending to say what priests were doing with little boys, and the problem—I mean, a problem that it was a priest. But within 200 years, it came a, a word that came into the culture, and within the culture, it meant that they were people were having non-procreative sex. So husbands and wives could also be guilty of having non-procreative sex. Okay. So if a husband and a wife engaged in an act that was not intent towards procreation, that was sodomy also.
0: Do I still have you? <laughs> So basically, I'm just stitching together some of the different uh, specific points in history when sex was viewed differently. So we can see that even what we view as heterosexual sex today was viewed as perverse and essentially the same thing as homosexual sex um, back in the 11th and 12th centuries. Kathy goes on to give a bunch of different examples uh, throughout history leading up to the 1800s um, about how sex has changed in its view, but still kind of kept the same idea that women were bad, men were good, and it was not good to waste seed. And it also was not good to have sex for pleasurable reasons.
2: Where are we in history? We are in about this period of history where we know what good sex and bad sex are. So bad sex is, good sex is procreative sex, Sex where the male is dominant and penetrating and where the sexual excesses are under control. Bad sex is the opposite.
0: Okay? Now Kathy moves to the 1800s.
2: So now how do we move from that into starting to understand homosexuality? Because homosexuality is just part of that. Well, I'm not going to say the word homosexuality. Same-sex behavior is just part of what bad sex is because it's not procreative and one man is being dominated. We can define our understanding of same-sex behavior into amorphic places of where sexuality is. Before this point of time, in 1868, um, it was the role you played. So remember, if you played the role of a man, if you were the penetrator, it was good sex. If you were the penetrated, it was bad sex. And then we're gonna come to a period of time, right here, where there's a gentleman named Carl Kurt Benny, and in 1868, Carl Kurt Benny starts noticing people around him that are uh, not a man with a boy, but two men together that have emotional, sexual, and romantic interests with one another. And he says, now, this is a little different. So he defines, he says, it's not really about the role you're playing in sex, there seems to be several ways that people are having sex, who they're attracted to. So he defines sex by who you're attracted to. 1868 is the first time this ever happens, okay? So it's not like it had never happened before, but somebody stops and says, no, there are ways that people are having sex. So he says they're having, it's in German originally, but he says there are heterosexuals. Now, don't be deceived that that's heterosexuals as we understand. Those heterosexuals were having sex with the same sex, the opposite sex, the same sex, animals and children. Okay. But the distinction was they were having sex that was lust-filled sex. This is a problem. So this heterosexual word is associated with lust and excesses. And then there were homosexuals. they were having sex with the same sex, and it was non-procreative, so that was a problem. And then there were natural sexuals which are like our heterosexuals. They were only having sex with the opposite sex. And then there were heterogenists that were only having sex with animals. And then there were heterosexuals and then there were monosexuals that were having sex with themselves. Masturbators, right? So he, he, um, he defines these different ways that people are having sex. He, he writes to a guy named Carl Erichs. We got him. Carl Erichs, um, just before this, he had been thinking about how people were having sex. And because he, his wife seemed to be having sex with women, um, he, he, he started thinking about this. And he says, okay, how can my wife possibly be having sex with the same sex? And how can I see men having sex with the same sex? So he came up with a theory that said, there's this thing called a sex love inside of people. And generally, it's the sex love. It's this thing, it's for the opposite sex, and put inside of me, it makes me fall in love with a man. But if you put this thing inside, the sex love inside of a man that's supposed to be for the opposite sex, he falls in love with a man. So this this kind of transferable sex love thing. So he notices that there are some men that are attracted to men. He calls them die earnings, and uh, die earnings are the true men, but because the sex love is for the opposite sex, and he calls the men that are falling in love with the same sex, earnings. So these are very basic, Terms and they're just trying to figure this out. So we're only in the 1870s, but at least it's a defining point where it's not the role you played anymore, but it's who you're attracted to. So very, very slow progression. And after that, I mean, we're going to go, we're going to slow it down after this, but, so then we're going to go to a period. So it'll be who you're attracted to. So it's attractions. And then till about the 19, teen, 20s, as I said, these lines are kind of squiggly lines. Then it's going to become a mental illness, yay, so much better than a mystery. And then it'll be a mental illness until, about the 70s, and then it'll be a preference, which is the word I learned, okay, and then eventually here it's going to become, in about the 1990s, we're going to start using the word sexual orientation. So we've had this long progression of not understanding what same-sex behavior looks like. So we've gone from all through history of it's the role you play, then it's a mystery, then it's a mental illness. Well, how did we get to that point?
0: Side note, as Kathy says, um, throughout all of this history, women are mostly ignored, except to be blamed for the lust of men. Um... So even while there were, you know, obviously lesbians and, uh, you know, also Kathy brings up transgender people, uh, they're largely just not even talked about. They're mostly ignored because the problem here was homosexuality within men. And of course, men wrote the history books and women didn't. And also...
2: It wasn't even until 1956 with Masters and Johnson that they proved that women were having orgasms, right? I mean, they, they could have said hello with that thing that, you know, why are you smiling? But... <laughs> But they didn't, because men were doing the studies.
0: So, yeah. Here's the definition of heterosexual in the late 1800s.
2: Interestingly, this word heterosexual had uh, yeah, who cares about lesbians? That's what it's just like, <laughs> who cares about lesbians? What about lesbians? Not much. There's a lot going on, but women aren't writing the histories, so we're not going to care much about them. But I want to read for you the, the definition, the first definition of a heterosexual. So if you're heterosexual, clap your hands, be happy, and this is your definition. Uh, They are given over to excess sex with men or women and masturbation heterosexual. Okay, I'm not misspeaking. They did it all. They are likely to assault minor boys and girls. They indulge in incest. They have sex with animals and corpses if they don't have any control. And some of them are bleeders and they can only satisfy their lust by wounding and torturing. That's the definition of a heterosexual. So what we're supposed to see in this is the first definition of heterosexual had lust and passion attached to it, and that's problematic, remember? Sex is supposed to be self-controlled, procreative, and male-dominant, and it breaks one of the rules and it's got less associated with it. It's gonna take another 66 years for the word heterosexual to become the definition that we're now comfortable with, okay?
0: After this came the idea of the sexual invert. So essentially, a gay man was someone who had their sexuality inverted, so it was flipped. Um, Instead of being pointed towards a woman, it would be pointed towards a man, and a woman could have the same thing where her sexuality would be inverted, and that's where you get the word invert. Invert was the most previous term for homosexual before the word homosexual. So after that period came the term homosexual, which Kathy's about to talk about.
2: Um, now we're gonna see what happens if this word is gonna start making it into the culture. So the first place it makes, starts making it is the word homosexual is the next one, Ed. The word homosexual ends up in a medical journal in, so this is, these are very slow progressions. Medical journal in um, 1892, it ends up in a medical dictionary in 1901, and a guy named A.A. A. Brill in Philadelphia says it in a medical lecture in 1911. And so it's a very, as I said, it's a very slow progression. It's still not into the culture. Next guy that comes along in 1893 is Kraft-Ebbing. And Kraft-Ebbing now comes up with the word hetero-sexual. See, we're still progressing. But what he's, he says that heterosexuality is a sexual perversion. It's a mystery. No one's understanding it. But this is what he says. But he did see that there, he did actually could see that there were some people that were hetero sexual that he could say good things about. They weren't all mentally defective. They all, weren't all mental the sexual perverts because he could see the good in some of their lives. But when he had to come up with why people were heterosexual, what he blamed it on was po- It was possibly glandular, glandular, But the probable cause of heter- homosexuality was masturbation. Okay, masturbation in much of the Bible. Self-abuse, right? You've heard that term, you've seen that term in the Bible, used in the Bible. Why, you should know now, why would self-abuse, masturbation be so problematic? Because it was non-procreative, okay? This is the basic problem of why it's so, pro, so, so uh, problematic. So now we're gonna have some interesting people. Masturbation has been a huge problem for much of history and has been causal to, or they thought causal to, to creating so many problems, all kinds of problems. But thank, thank you that there were some people that came along that said, Thank you, facetiously. There were some people that came along and said, um, there's lives of excess going on here, and if we can just keep people from being um, excessive in their eating, in their drinking, in their sexual behaviors, then we can stop them from having all of these perversions and all these illnesses going along. So he created, so this, this guy in particular, his name is a conservative Presbyterian minister, Reverend Sylvester Graham, and uh, he thought that a bland and pure diet could start to control people's sexual ex- uh, excesses. You know where I'm going. Don't you? So he creates a bland food for people to stop to remind them to keep a life of uh, self-control and no excess excesses. So he creates the graham cracker. Okay. So enjoy your graham crackers, your s'mores by the fires, but don't do it alone and keep both your hands on the table. Okay. And he's not the only one. We have another, and why is she talking about masturbation? Because people thought that masturbation causes homosexuality. We've been off on a few tangents here. I mean, there should be, the planet should be filled with 98% of homosexuals in that case, right? So then there was another person, another anti-masturbator of the day. His name was John Harvey Kellogg. So so what did he create? Granola and cornflakes. Bland diets to keep you from expressing your excesses, to keep you from masturbating. So again, enjoy your cornflakes in the morning, but keep both your hands on the table. We don't want you expressing your excesses. So he was so sex negative that he, um, he never even consummated his own marriage and they adopted all their children. But isn't that interesting? So people thought, these guys and lots of people thought that masturbation inflamed the brain and caused all kinds of problems. Epilepsy, blindness, early death, and homosexuality. So, so there was this point of time in the US history and you can look at, if you're like me, you spend hours looking at this stuff what are the circumcision rates in the United States and how did they change? Because they believe that you would, if you would circumcise a baby boy, that would cause uh, sexual diseases to not spread when they were older, never proven. And also, if you cut off their foreskin, they wouldn't masturbate. And if you didn't cut off the foreskin, at least do the right thing for your baby boy and cover his penis with leather or a plaster of Paris. You know, you don't want your children masturbating because then their brains will swell, they'll be epileptic or worse yet homosexuals. Okay.
0: So as you can see, our Western culture is just completely steeped in all of these wrong ideas and belief systems, specifically surrounding sex. I mean, we're a culture completely obsessed with sex and specifically figuring out what is perverted and what is not based on a religious perspective. Um, I mean, even to the point of Kellogg's and graham crackers, you know, being... uh, created based on that sort of diet that's meant to prevent masturbation. So I think, you know, as we get further and further into the history of even just America and Western civilization, it starts to become clear, like why we are still holding some of these really outdated and, uh, you know, just old beliefs that we feel are so true and ingrained in us and who we are. You know, they all have their roots and they have, there's reasons why we believe what we believe today. And so it's important to believe things from people who actually know this history and have done the research and are actually qualified to give an opinion. In the next segment, Kathy talks about how gay men and uh, prostitutes have been linked throughout history um, in many different ways. And then also gets into some of the history of homophobia within the military and uh, politics in the government in the US. And why, essentially, homosexuals went from, you know, the definition being uh, a disease to uh, them being criminals?
2: Uh, prohibition, prohibition comes to the United States. It doesn't mean so. It's illegal to all these things are connected. It, uh, it's illegal to make, transport, or sell alcohol. It doesn't mean that there's no bars during the height of prohibition in New York City alone. There were twenty-five thousand speakeasies, and the social scene was ripe with people who were called homosexual, sexual inverts. They were even called fairies. There were some words, uh, men were calling themselves queer. It was a word that they owned at first. They were were calling themselves queer, and they were very much in the social scenes. And when the 21st Amendment came along and abolished uh, prohibition, there were rules set on bars. And the rules said, if there's any of these inappropriate kinds of people that come into your establishment, you're gonna lose your business license. And they picked two kinds of people that were inappropriate to be in business establishments, and they were female prostitutes and male homosexuals. You're gonna see wanton women and male homosexuals hooked through history. You're gonna just see them hooked up through history. Um, and we can see that even in language. So the word gay comes from a French word, G-A-I, and in the 17th century it was associated with female prostitutes that fornicated. The word um, "the word faggot, F-A-G-O-T, not two Gs, was associated with a, a, like a shrewish woman in the 1800s of England, and she'd be a bent over wench that nobody wanted, and she would go throughout the streets and she would collect bundles of sticks, faggots, French word, with one G still, and she would use that to cook her food and keep herself warm. So she was a tossed off woman. She was called a faggot. So that word was associated with a man that was penetrated. that was a tossed off man. So you can see through history, the words that were associated first with women became um, debasing words for men. Molly, pansy, buttercup, all of these, uh, these uh, women. So we know what's happening in the culture. There's a slow shift to unhinge sexuality from pro, or the sex act from procreation. Doctors are telling us there's something wrong with homosexuals. Nothing's happening in the Bible, by the way. We're not looking at the Bible there. What's happening in the military? And why I ask the question about what's happening in the military is because in the 1940s, 20% of the jobs in the United States were associated with the US military and the State Department. So how does the military start dealing with people that we're starting to see now are mentally ill? There's a guy that comes along. His name is Henry Stack Sullivan. And he says, he comes to the department, the head of the Selective Service, and he says, now in World War I, we had a lot of people that ended up broken by going to war. Wouldn't it be good if we ever got into war again? He does this in 1939 and 40. Wouldn't it be great if we ever got into a situation with war again if we were to define beforehand who those breakable people were? That would save the US government lots of money if we wouldn't break people and, and have them end up in, in military hospitals. They said it's a great idea. So he comes up with a list of eight kinds of people that will break if you send them to war. And homosexuality is not on that list. It's 1940. He doesn't, he's a psychotherapist, he's a psychiatrist, he's, a, he's got some Freudian, um, theories moving around in him, but he has the experience of also working in state mental institutions and with normal people. Freud had the wealthy people that were on the couch, Henry Stack Sullivan had a lot more practical experience. So he gives this list of eight kinds of breakable people to the government. Homosexuals are not on the list, right? The guy that he hands it to is this guy named Andrew Dykstra, who's the head of Selective Service at the time, and he looks at the list, he starts working on it, he says, great, we won't send these kind of people off to war. Well, within 11 months, Andrew Dykstra, Dykstra gets replaced by another guy, Brigadier General Louis Hershey, Louis Hershey has no time for psychotherapy, Psychiatrist, he doesn't believe in this, new science, he doesn't believe in anything of this, he doesn't ask anybody for any medical expert opinions on homosexuality, he adds homosexual onto that list. He just adds it onto that list. So I got curious, what kind of guy would do this? What kind of guy would just add this onto the list? I mean, we all know really authoritarian type people. Well, it ends up, I just did some research on him. And he's the guy that in 1967, when, because he was still in the Selective Service, he's the guy that in 1967, when the Vietnam War was going on and students were protesting on campuses, he passed this memorandum, I think it was memorandum, number 185, he passed a memorandum that said, students had educational deferments. He said, but if they didn't have their card on them or they burned it or they mutilated it, they would go right up the draft line to the number one position. He just didn't want to have anything to do with that. What was interesting about that was protests on college campuses increased radically after he did that. And the case made it to the Supreme Court and they wiped it out. So he was a, it showed that historically that he was a very authoritarian man that didn't listen to input. And he is the guy that put homosexuals will break in war on the list with absolutely no evidence. So homosexuals start getting persecuted in the government, in the military, and as soon as um, when the war ended, there were some uh, legislators that kind of picked up the ball and ran with it, and we're gonna see McCarthy come into that introduction. So now we're seeing homosexuals come and now be problematic. So now homosexuals are kind of moving from, they're not only mentally ill, but by 1950, they're gonna also be criminals. So (laughs) what a progression, right? We don't understand what it is, then it's a mental illness, then it's a mental illness and a crime. So we're just moving through this, but heterosexuals are normal. Heterosexuals are totally normal. So non-procreative lust-filled sex for homosexual heterosexuals is quite normal.
0: Again, this is just to build the scene for what culture was like at the time of the introduction of the word homosexual into the Bible. I'm trying to keep your attention here because I know that this is a lot and I'm throwing kind of a lot of random details at you, but I'm trying to set the stage here to show how deep the history runs when it comes to the homophobia of Western civilization.
2: The reason I wanted to get us to this point of history, because I wanted to sit right here. I want us to sit right here in this point of history.
0: Which is in the 1920s to 1940s. So around 1937, I believe.
2: And why this is important is so, homosexuals are mentally ill and probably criminal. They are pedophiles. And the reason that they're pedophiles is because they got stuck in this childhood stage. So the only person, the only people that they can be attracted to are other children, right? because they're in a child stage, they haven't progressed to full maturity yet. These are the theories. And so mentally ill, sexual deviants, um, sexual fiends, predators, go after your kids, um, starting to hide, after prohibition, where they had been so popular in the species here, now the laws have changed and said female prostitutes and homosexuals, no more, they can't go into the bars anymore, so they start going underground into their own places. And so that's exactly where we're sitting, okay? That's where we are in history. And why I'm gonna leave it there and why we had to get to this point is, right here, 1946, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible is gonna come out, actually down here's the Bible line, Revised Standard Version. So we have to know, when we go in to look at those verses, what the members of the translation team understood or didn't understand about human sexuality. They were a product of their environment, right? And we have to know how they would have looked at those verses and how this entire culture would have informed them about what these verses mean. So that's where we're gonna pick it up. We're gonna pick up with an incredibly interesting story about the RSV. Sex. we're gonna talk about ancient times because this, this verse was written in the first century. So we're gonna look at two particular words and what they mean in the first century. We're gonna look at this word malakoi and tai. And why they're important is because these two words are gonna be combined up together in the 1946 version of the, revi- the, the, new, the revised standard version. The New Testament came out in 1946, September 30th, 1952, the entire Bible comes out. But in 1946 is the first time in any language, in any translation, the word homosexual ends up in the Bible, right? So it's only been recently defined, but it ends up in the Bible. So, and then the first time homosexual is gonna end up in Romans 1, which is another one of the clobber verses, is in 1971. These are very new additions to the Bible. Uh, I just wanna say a little bit more about about sex before we we go on to this, remember? That the sex of a person was not what was between their legs. Sex is rather a place that you sit on this hierarchical scale. Are you the male, are you playing the male masculine role or the female feminine role? We know what good sex is and bad sex is. Penetration is how a man proves that it's virile. Um, Somebody loses power, somebody gains power. It's a zero sum game. Um, A man that was penetrated lost so much power that he could no longer testify in court because he was seen to be like a woman, and the word testify comes as the same root word as testicles. And to testify in court, a man would have to take his hand, his left hand, and put it on his testicles and testify, right? So if you had been penetrated or taken the role of a woman, you couldn't testify anymore because you lost your testicles. And needless to say, a woman couldn't testify because she didn't have any testicles, right? So it was all about the role you took during sex, were you a male or a female, were you a man? So there are these places in the Bible, Genesis 1, which is the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which we're not going to deal with, which is about rape of a stranger. Leviticus, we're gonna deal with that tomorrow night when we look at the living Bible, because that's the first place the word homosexuality is gonna end up in the Bible in Leviticus. It's gonna be 1971. Romans 1, 26 and 27, it's kind of speculative. It ends up in a commentation on the Bible in 1953. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, homosexual is gonna end up in 1946, 1952. And 1 Timothy 1, 10 is gonna end up in the Bible in the 70s as well. So these are very new, places where homosexuality ends up in the Bible. So now, Corinthians, okay? So these are the people that are not going to heaven. Malakoi people and, and Arsenecoi type people. So who are these people? Let's look at the word Malakoi first because it's a little bit easier. So Malakoi indicates mostly an, a weakness of character and it's associated with a softness. And it's not just a word about sex, it's associated with the qualities of being a woman. Because the last thing you wanna be is to be like a woman. So it has all those awful qualities of a woman. So if you were called Malakoi, you were lazy, the qualities of a woman. We all know these. Lazy, decadent, lack of courage, can't put up with hard, hard work, a coward, drinks too much, unchaste, lustful, has too much sex. And about men, the ones that love gourmet food, they study too much, they read too many books, they preen themselves like peacocks to attract women and seduce other men's wives, and a, pa- a penetrated man was malikos. So the, this is what the word malacoy or malikos means. And In ancient times, these would have been seen as feminine traits. So a man that had feminine traits or was, pe- fem- penetrated like a woman, was called malakos, But being penetrated, so being penetrated wasn't the only way you could be malakos. you could be malakos by being all these other things. Decadent, liking too much gourmet food, so put yourself in the list. If there's anything on the top of the list you want, you are, then you would have been called malakos, which is eventually gonna get translated to homosexual, which is pretty funny. Well, it's not very unfortunate, actually. So, and the word tai, let's go there, that's the next word. tai is, is the second part of this, and tai is a very hard word to know what it means. For 600 years of history, it appears only 100 times in surrounding literature of the time, 600 years. It's believed that Paul took this word and coined it, "Yes." Our Sen is in Leviticus, in male bed, but that was 1,400 years before. I don't know very many words that have held their same meaning for 1,400 years, and that's just not a good way to look at this. We have to try to figure out what this word means. So we can go and we can look into text to see what it means, but the problem is it only lines, it only um, appears in lists. So it appears particularly the two lists that people tend to look at are the Acts of John, the the Acts of John and the Sibylline Oracles from the sixth century and the second century. So we see this word in the list. In the Acts of John, it's talking to the, it's a condemnation of the rich men of Ephesus, and it's a list of their economic sins, their abusive economic sins towards others. And we see this word on the list of these economic abusive sins. And it's not, there's an economic list of exploitation, economic exploitation, and there's a sin list. Our Seneca is not on the sin list. It's on the economic exploitation list. So that should give us some kind of indication of what this word means, but we still don't know. In the Sibylline oracles, there's another two lists. There's the economic list and the sexual sin list again. Arsenechoitai appears on the economic list. Here's where it appears. It says, don't accept blood money, don't steal, don't arsenicoitai, don't do it. Don't cheat an employee for their wages, don't oppress the poor, and don't neglect providing for orphans and widows. It's not on the sin list once again. So if it were a sexual sin, we could expect it to be on the sin list and it's not. So whatever they were doing in Corinth, that Paul felt the need to use and coin this word, it was something that had to do with some kind of exploitation of others, abuse of others, and yes, in this case, there was a sexual exploitative abuse of others. I really like Professor Dale Martin, a retired professor from Yale's explanation of our Senate Koytai here. He says, what he, so what is happening in Corinth, he doesn't like what's happening in Corinth and it's polluting the church. And he says, <clears throat> how he imagines it, is that there's younger men that are allowing themselves to be sexually used to climb the social ladder and there's older men that are sexually using younger men for their own excesses and and purposes but the the emphasis on it is this exploitative use of others in both directions in both directions and we can kind of see these kind of relationships today and they're not just homosexual i mean i can imagine that there are heterosexual relationships where an older person is using a un- younger huh. person for their own sexual purposes, and the younger person is trying to take advantage of the older person's oh, social status. So Arsene Koyte goes on today, but it's not just same-sex behavior. So,
0: Yeah, I think the people in Reading probably know exactly what that is referring to. <laughs> we all just got the email, huh? But jokes aside, even though that wasn't really a joke... <laughs> um. The words arsenikoitai and malakoi obviously do not refer to what we understand as homosexual today. Um, and Kathy Baldock continues saying...
2: So arsenicoite goes on today, but it's not just same-sex behavior. So um, a good definition of arsenicoite might be, and because nobody knows what arsenikoitai means, because as I said, it's only on lists, men who sexually exploit males to gain social power. There's, it has to have that um, component of exploitation within it. And it's absolutely not addressing what women do sexually. got nothing to do with women. So when it translates to homosexual, which also includes women, the original word has nothing, arsenkoite has nothing to do with women, and malakoi has nothing to do with women. It has to do with men behaving with having these traits of women. But it doesn't have to do with what women are doing.
0: Before 1946, the only verses that people regarded as having anything to do with same-sex behavior included Genesis 19, the Sodom and Gomorrah story, which focused on raping strangers and not providing adequate hospitality. Um, Leviticus 18, which discusses who to have sex with and who not to have sex with, essentially a population issue. Romans 1, which talks about excessive sexual practices. And Jude 1.7, which talks about sex with angels. No one considered 1 Corinthians 6.9 or 1 Timothy as verses that had to do with same-sex sex or homosexual behavior. But for some reason, these are our go-to verses today that condemn homosexuality. So how did those verses change to our modern translations today, which are used to bash gay people as unholy degenerates?
2: Okay, um, 1901, the American Standard Version, nor the effeminate, nor the abuses of themselves with mankind. This is an interesting one. The Moffat Bible, nor the catamite, nor the sodomite. So, Kadamite is a word that James Moffat, and he's an interesting character. James Moffat uh, wrote this Bible a Scottish theologian, and he ended up on the translation team for the 1946 version of the Bible. And his translation, so the catamite would be the person that's penetrated, and the sodomite, the one that's doing the penetration. And tomorrow we're gonna look at what that, where that word catamite actually comes from. But in 1913, he said it was catamite or sodomite. 1946, the two words are combined, remember? One means to have those awful qualities of woman, and the other one means to have some kind of excessive economic abuse, sexual abuse of another person. And the team combines those two words and makes the translation homosexual, okay? So all of a sudden, this act of sodomy does it is no longer an act, it is a kind of person for the first time in history. It becomes a kind of person. How the heck did that happen, okay?
0: Before Kathy did her research, no one really knew exactly why the translation changed to homosexual. Kathy talks about her suspicions as to why the words changed, saying that she originally thought that there was malice attached because of how the translations would later be used. But when she was approached by a historian to do the research herself and find out why exactly those words were changed to mean homosexual, she embarked on a journey to the Yale libraries to uncover any information that was attached to the translation team back in 1946 for the RSV Bible. These archives were largely untouched since that translation took place. And so Kathy and her team were actually the first people to uncover and document for wider use, um, essentially why these translations were made.
2: So we sat in the archives of Yale. We planned this months in advance. We got our library cards. Um, We went in, and you can't bring papers in with you. You can bring a phone or a computer to record things. We brought, we wisely brought a friend along as a documentarian who would take pictures of documents when we didn't have time to. We knew we had a lot to go through, so we brought a documentarian with us. And we also wanted him to film in case we found anything. We didn't know what we'd find. I went in, I can personally tell you what I went in thinking. I should have known better, but I went in thinking that in 1946, there was malice attached to this translation. and that the team probably sat around and said, this word, it has to do with those filthy sexual inverts, those filthy homosexuals. Let's make this word homosexual. I was absolutely sure there would be some malice within the translation. Morning of day three, we still hadn't found anything. But what we did find was that nobody had ever gone through all of these paper documents. We could tell because the paper clips were rusted onto pages. We could tell because paper sat on top of other paper and discolored it, and when we moved it, we could tell nobody had ever moved it. So some of these papers had been in these boxes for 60 to 80 years and nobody had ever touched them. And we went through every last stinking piece of paper. And then when we were done with that, we couldn't find anything. What I did find that was really interesting though, is I probably found, um, I found about maybe 50 iterations of a list. And on this list were, it listed, it said, here's the word in Greek or Hebrew. Here's what it said in the American Standard Version. Here's what it said in the English Standard Version. Here's what it said in the King James. And here's what we're gonna make it say in the Revised Standard Version. And there were these lists of words that were gonna change. And all kinds of words changed. And absolutely nowhere on those 50 iterations of lists that i find did the word homosexual end up anywhere which surprised me because it was a distinct change from the uh, american standard version the english standard version and the king james it was a distinct change and i couldn't find it on any list and that bothered me surprised me
0: warning a bit of a longer segment is coming up from kathy but you're going to want to pay attention because it's pretty interesting stuff
2: but i could see the word as it floated by me <laughs> homosexual okay oh, and, and i think i found it and i read the first two sentences and i stopped because I wanted my sweet boy next to me. So he moved on over, and our documentarian took out two iPhones and started recording. And for the first time, we wrote the, read these letters together. And what happened was, in the 1950s, there was a young seminarian from Canada that wrote to Dr. Weigel. First he wrote to Thomas Nelson, and they passed the letter on to, to Dr. Weigel. And he said, basically, I'm not understanding why you've taken arsinecoite and malakoi and translated it into homosexual, right? So one other little piece of thing, did I say it? The actual translation work on the book of second, First Corinthians? Because when I found, went through the second time, I could find the date on those documents when they translated. They actually translated 1 Corinthians, the team, not in 46, because that's when it was printed. They actually translated it between 1935 and 1937. So it's even worse. What could they have possibly understood about homosexuality, human sexuality in 1935? Not very much. So this young seminarian writes to Dr. Weigel, and he writes an absolutely beautiful letter. And out of all of the paperwork we went through, the second time round, I found one more postcard. I'll read you that first. <clears throat> this postcard was written in 1952. Um, it's, it's, I blew it up, but it's the size of a postcard. It's just a postcard, little postcard. And it was before the entire Bible came out. So it was in March, the entire Bible came out in 1952. And it's from a pastor in uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick. And he says, Dear Sir, having been asked by a parishioner who has a problem of homosexuality in the family as to what the scriptures say about the problem, I discovered sodomites in 1 Timothy 1.10. And on checking in the Greek word, I found it to be the word arsenikoitai as in 1 Corinthians 6, 10, 6, nine, but here you've translated as homosexual. I wondered if there's a reason that you translated the word differently in both places, which is a great question. Right? It's a great question. So he says, I see that Dr. Moffat, the guy that wrote the 1913 Bible, used sodomites in both places, in 1 Timothy and 1 Corinthians, and he says, thank you for your attention to this. I love this, probably insignificant point. <laughs> probably insignificant, yeah, it's gonna rip an entire group of people apart for the next 60 years. Yeah, more than that. Um, uh, and I'm looking forward to your new Bible. So this was the only other record we found. His response was fairly light. His response basically said, well, this is why I did it. I took the two words, I took our senacoite and Malacoy and combined them up into one word homosexual. And that was the explanation. The only long explanation we found was the response to the seminarian. And it was a detailed, detailed response. And it said exactly why the team did that, which proved my theory of it was ideological and cultural, and they had no understanding as to what the words meant. They translated it. But this young seminarian writes to Dr. Weigel three exchanges of letters back and forth. Seminarian to Weigel, Weigel to seminarian, seminarian to Weigel, Weigel to seminarian, and another time. So there's three record, three letters each from each of them, and they're in the archives. So I will tell you that, because this becomes important, the letters were written in 1959. Okay? This becomes an important date. So he writes in one, his first letter to Dr. Weigel, he says. Um, he's, disappointed in this translation. He says, I'm therefore intensely disappointed and concerned about this faulty and misleading translation. I believe that this slip shows a personal prejudice and lack of information on the part of the translators involved regarding the scientific, academic approach to their task in such a way as to render this inaccurate translation. I write this after many months of serious thought and hard work, partly to point out that which to me is a serious weakness in translation but more because my deep concern for those who are wronged and slandered by this inaccurate usage of the word." And then he goes on to say, that he's concerned that misinformed and misguided people, those among the clergy not excluded, who may use the RSV translation of 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10 as a sacred weapon. So he writes this in 1959. And he ends the first letter by saying, I write this letter, when when we read this together on the screen, oh, we just, I cried. Um, I write this letter with certain homosexual individuals in mind. Christians who would die for their faith, their church, and their Lord. So he writes this to him. And then Weigel just simply responds, he has lists of what the words mean in the past translations, and he concludes to say, the term homosexual was used in the RSV was intended by the committee to simply express one compact meaning of our Almost no theology behind it. Yes, they looked as we did at what the words had meant in the past, but catamite and sodomite, those are old words, and no one knows what they mean, so we came up with homosexual, and besides, Those were the words that were used in Moffat's Bible. Moffat was on the team. We didn't want to use Moffat's words because then we would have been slanting towards what Moffat had done. So their best solution was to come up with the word homosexual.
0: The only theologian who was against this translation was Derek Sherman Bailey, who wrote the book Homosexuality and the Western Christian Tradition. However, he didn't oppose the translation for the reason you might think.
2: Homosexuality and Central Western Christian Tradition, published in 1955. Derek Sherwin Bailey is an interesting character. He was an Anglican priest. He looked at the English laws against homosexuality, and he said, these don't seem to be fair. There had been five very high profile arrest cases on homosexuals in England. Sir John Gielgud, who was known to be one of the most famous Shakespearean actors, and Alan Turing from The Imitation Game, right? They say that Alan Turing, because he solved the enigma machine, that he probably saved a million lives and shortened World War II by two years. He was a brilliant man, but he was a known homosexual. So they started injecting him with Estrogen, they they took his um, knighthood away, and they started doing a conversion on him. So there were these very high-profile cases, so um, Derek Sherwin Bailey did the work. He kind of, I kind of do the approach he does. He got some historians, some lawyers, some theologians, um, all kinds of people together and said, let's look at the real history of this word and the history of homosexuality and criminalization and see if we can come up with something better, because it seems that we're using the morality laws um, explicitly against two groups of people. Who would those two groups of people be? Female prostitutes, and homosexuals again. So these morality laws were about all kinds of sexual, immorality, sexual immoralities, but it was never about heterosexual adultery. It was about female prostitutes and homosexuals. So Derek Sherwin Bailey, in this book, he writes in his Homosexuality in the Western Tradition, this is the only other record during the time that I found where somebody complained about this translation. He writes, he says, says, paraphrase, and then I'll get to his quote. He says, the word homosexual, um, the Bible Bible says nothing about homosexuality. He says there's absolutely nothing about it. But then he directly says, unless this, I write this in 1955. Unless this error is corrected and the true meaning of the passage is explained, the wide circulation of this version and the reputation which its general merit has for has for it may only serve to encourage intolerance and to perpetrate perpetuate a great social injustice, thus seriously discrediting the Christian Church. So he gets in 1955. The Bible says nothing about homosexuality, and you just made it say something about homosexuality.
0: So essentially, Derek Sherwin Bailey saw this translation and called it out and said this is going to cause negative things to happen within culture, Um, knowing what they did about homosexuality, which was very little, but also seeing the repercussions of bigotry against homosexuals and female prostitutes, they realized that this sort of translation was going to not bode very well for those people. They also so clearly realized that it was a mistranslation as to call out the fact that it would Greatly harm the reputation of the Christian church. As Kathy indicated, they essentially made the Bible say something that up until that point everyone agreed it never said. Kathy goes on later to talk about how the committee who translated that text to say homosexual later reversed that decision and changed it back to, I believe, sodomy or just arsenicoitai and malachoi. Um, But by then, most of the translations throughout the U.S. and the world had picked up that version of the translation homosexual and had disseminated it across most translations that we see today. And just like they predicted, the repercussions for homosexuals have not been very favorable. Now, I know what you're thinking, that there are other arguments and reasons why people condemn homosexuality from a biblical perspective. In part two, Kathy goes into each one of the the clobber passages, including the ones that don't even use the words homosexual and deconstructs them showing how before 1946, they were never viewed as condemning of homosexuality, but we're actually speaking on more nuanced topics, specifically, um, things like hospitality and having extreme lust, as well as population control, um, depending on where you find those verses in the Bible. Um, I also know that there are different arguments surrounding uh, what Jesus talks about in terms of uh, holy marriage being between a man and a woman. And, you know, posit the uh, people posit the argument <laughs> that if homosexual relationships are not talked about in the same context, then how could they be holy? Um, you know, there are other places you can find deconstructions for those arguments but essentially that would be a very modern argument um, given the context of the actual Bible because you could make the same argument for women speaking in church or any of the various laws found in Leviticus that we don't follow today um, as well as different uh, you know arguments for enslaving people and being racist which were used for centuries to uh, condone that behavior so from my perspective, uh, any argument that does not go into Greek translation or specific uh, contextual translation of the Bible is a modern argument and it's based in bigotry. So if you um, if you have questions about that, I'm gonna be doing a part two of this that goes into the deconstruction of each of the clobber passages. But this is just kind of the first, um, you know the first attempt at putting together a very clear and concise understanding of historical context that essentially caused the Bible to become uh, homophobic when, previous to the to you know modern times, it actually was not and actually was pretty silent on the topic of homosexuality. Again, my goal here is not to change anyone's mind, but rather to offer a concise and clear. Uh, deconstruction essentially of our understanding of homosexuality from a biblical perspective um in case it helps people who are my friends <laughs> i mean i again am not looking for validation from a biblical perspective because i don't really view the bible as able to validate or invalidate me however the goal of this pod was essentially to beat christians at their own game because most of the time when i've talked to them about their views on homosexuality. None of it is based in historical fact or actual biblical knowledge, but rather it's based in um, essentially bigotry. And from my point of view, if you're going to treat us like this, you better have a good, well-researched reason for it, otherwise it is bigotry. After I watched those videos from Kathy and did my own research to confirm, I honestly was met with kind of an overwhelming feeling of grief. there first definitely was some freedom. I think that I felt free of the shackles of misinterpreted biblical passages and um, you know, people laying their own current beliefs onto ancient texts. Um, but after that freedom, I really did feel a deep sense of sorrow because of the effects of that translation in 1946 um, in modern times. You know in which I grew up so I I think it's it's interesting and I always wonder like as science and history was progressing to understand homosexuals as not so negative even though we did you know culture kind of has always viewed the queers as bad (laughs) Um, I do wonder if that simple translation hadn't have happened and then those words were not you know, transcribed over different verses to make them be very uh, anti-homosexual. You know, what church might have looked like growing up uh, in the time that I did. Um, It's a very interesting thing to think about and something that, you know, might open your mind to your own views on the topic as well as other things you believe about the Bible without really doing the appropriate historical uh, research and contextualization. Um i'm gonna leave it there but thank you so much for listening i'm also not going to continue with my therapy session this this week because this uh pod has been pretty long so far (laughs) um but i will pick up next week with uh with more details on that on that session because it was actually a really good one um But thank you so much for listening. I genuinely appreciate you. And this was Queer Therapy. Again, please let me know what your current Queer Therapy is in the comments below. I don't know where the comments below are, but maybe on Instagram. (laughs) Let me know what your Queer Therapy is. Um, Oh, actually, one more thing. I'm going to read my friend's Queer Therapy that they sent to me. And that can give you a little idea of what you could send me as what your Queer Therapy is. So one moment. Okay, my friend sent me this queer therapy and said, I was looking through these perfume oil descriptions and felt like you might enjoy the seductive and alluring descriptions as well. It makes me want to be a mysterious form standing in a French art museum smelling of musk, sweat, and tobacco. This is my queer therapy this week. I'm going to link what they sent me in the description, but it's called Permanent Posits... Uh... Uh, posets i don't know (laughs) get classic and natural perfume oils today so it's perfume descriptions and they're just so sensual and beautiful and lovely and you should go take a read of their descriptions because uh they are very queer and therapizing (laughs) um anyway thank you so much again for listening i hope that you enjoyed the session and that it freed you up a little bit from the shackles of evil christianity (laughs) Um, i love you guys thanks so much